Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Welcome for the next three hours. We'll be coming at you with truth and comedy and music. A lot of guests, much smarter and more moral than me. It's been quite a week here on the Love Fest. We've had some wonderful guests, including Academy Award-winning director Guillermo del Toro. I'm still pinching myself from that. Next week, it's going to be a lot of fun. Returning to the show, Paul McCartney's daughter and my future wife, uh, Mary McCartney, once again. Tonight, well, we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, Adrian uh, Shropshire of Vote Black Pack is going to be here to talk about the three million doors they knocked on in Georgia and how they turned this election around for Raphael Warnock and what it was like going and seeing how engaged the voters of Georgia really were and making sure people were going to turn out for their second special election for a runoff in just two years. Also, Mark Caputo of NBC News. He's never done the show before, but he wrote a dynamite piece about what was going on inside the Walker campaign. Spoiler alert, uh, Herschel wasn't very good at this, but also his wife wasn't very good at it either. And it's fascinating to hear how the inner workings of the campaign were going back and forth with Walker's son, Christian, begging him to try to control his dad before it got too late. He also had a great, great piece for NBC about what actually happened with the very Nazi Mar-a-Lago Thanksgiving with Kanye West and Nick Puentes. Actually, the more I've learned, the more I think maybe, just maybe, Donald Trump was completely incompetent and it wasn't just poor vetting. Uh, Trump walked into a trap. Chris Hauselt is our executive producer running this thing from the South Carolina Bureau, the iconic Thea Harper. Managing this beast from Brooklyn, and I come to you from Manhattan. I want to thank everybody who listens live. You are our evil army of the night. We love you. We love to hear from you live. And maybe you're someone who doesn't normally call. Maybe you just like to listen while you're working in the garage or doing your thing. I respect that. But we'd love to hear from you tonight because we are going to talk about uh, the dynamic Democratic, now independent senator from the state of Arizona. And hello to everybody who listens on demand on the SiriusXM app or on the John Fuglesang podcast. You are our daywalkers, and we love you. We thank you for your notes and your tweets and your, your angry threats on the Facebook page. You're always allowed to join in some night and call as well. It's a Friday. We're going to bring you into the weekend nice and sane and calm-like, and we're going to have a lot of fun. Let's do a show. Um, Where to begin? Where to begin? Well, folks, here's the thing. Don't let Kirsten Cinema get you down, Okay. Please, on Wednesday, Chuck Schumer came out and said that the Democrats' 51-seat majority will give them subpoena power to deal with corporate corruption. And today, 
one of the most corporately corrupted Democrats said, eh, I'm out. Kirsten Cinema, the woman who single-handedly stopped Democrats from ending a tax break for hedge fund managers and private equity executives. Kirsten Cinema, the reason, the reason why we don't have a higher minimum wage, why we don't have extended child tax credits, the reason why we don't have voting rights protections. Oh, this senator who received over a million dollars in donations from Wall Street. This senator, who Mitch McConnell told far-right-wing GOP donors they should donate the maximum to, and they have. Her 2021 financial disclosure shows something that, well, it won't surprise you, she's raking in cash from the right wing. According to the FEC filings that came out at the beginning of this year, she brought in $1.6 million in the fourth quarter last year. And out of that $1.6 million, only $33,000 of it came from ordinary people, unitemized, donations of less than $200. She got $33,000 of donations from people who are real, giving under $200. And then she got $1.6 million from Wall Street, uh, from um, Harlan Crow, massive Republican donor. The Texas Tribune called one of the biggest whales in the country, Ken Langone. Huge GOP donor who felt betrayed by Trump. She got money like uh, from from um, the financier George Roberts, groups like the American Petroleum Institute and Fox News. Fox News's political action committee, Fox Corp, the PAC, gave her the maximum they could give. It's all about her. She voted against the minimum wage. Arizona Democrats censured her for not protecting voting rights. She blocked increasing taxes on the super rich. She has made it a policy to sell her vote to the highest bidder openly. She is a horrible person. And today, we all got really outraged that she wants to leave. It's like every relationship I've ever had. I can't stand you. You're evil. Wait, no, don't go. Don't go. Um, it, it's almost like this has been in play for a while. That's a very developed announcement. And obviously, she's known this day was coming. Now, I want to know your thoughts on this because she has a right to do whatever she wants. And look, I, I, I'm a political independent. Um, I, I've never belonged to a political party. So I guess welcome, Kirsten, except she's not really independent in no way. But we'll get to that. Senator Cinema owes her entire career to the Democratic Party. She used to be a Green. We'll get to that, too. She used to be very, very left-wing. And she has been indulged by the leadership of this party. Schumer and Biden have bent over backwards to please and appease her. And she waited. She waited until this week when Raphael Warnock won the runoff in Georgia. She waited until a rare moment of celebration for this Congress to make this announcement. Nate Silver had this to say, uh, cinema was not very popular with anyone. I'm not sure whether today's move increases or decreases her chances of winning another term. I actually suspect decreases, but they were low to begin with and they remain low. Her digital firm, Authentic, just dropped her as a client. They said Authentic has represented cinema for years, but the firm saw an internal revolt over its work for the senator earlier this year as she voted against several of the Biden administration's initiatives and refused to support revamping filibuster rules to move legislation on voting rights. One employee wrote in a union message that the person felt they were doing the devil's work. And, and closer to home, Sasha Hayworth, who was her communications director when she ran for the Senate in 2018, she just joined the primary cinema pack as the senior advisor. Yes, her communications director who helped get her into the Senate has now joined the Anybody But Kirsten pack. 
Emily Kirkland, who is the former executive director of Progress Arizona, is also joining the pack. In a tweet this morning, Sasha Hayworth said, it was her first comments ever criticizing Kirsten Cinema. This is a slap in the face to everyone who broke their backs to get her elected in 2018. Thousands of unpaid volunteers who worked night and day for a year because they believe they have an ally in the Senate. Cinema is showing us who she's always been all along, out for herself. Pretty accurate so far. Hmm? Uh, speaking of people who know better, here's Jake Tapper asking Cinema. And if you saw this interview, it was lovely. He gave her a pedicure towards the end. Here he is asking her how she thinks her party switch will affect the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. The balance of power right now is 51 Democrats or 51 votes for the Democratic Party. That includes two independents, Angus King of Maine and Bernie Sanders of Vermont. But that's 51-49. What you're doing today doesn't change that. It's still basically going to be 51-49. Well, I know you have to ask that question, Jake. Yeah. But that's kind of a D.C. thing to worry about. What I'm really focused on is just making sure that I'm doing what I think comports with my values and the values of Arizonans. So when I come to work each day, it'll be the same. I'm going to still come to work and hopefully serve on uh, the same committees I've been serving on and continue to work well with my colleagues of both political parties. And I'm not really spending much time worrying about what the mechanics look like for Washington, D.C. And to be honest, Jake, I don't think anyone in Arizona is caring about that either. Um, Never so I don't more. think things will oh. change much for me, and I don't think things will change much for Arizonans. Of course, never mind the values of the Arizona Democrats who got her elected to the U.S. Senate, who canvassed for her and believed she was who she said she was and who got her the job where she now enjoys incredible bribe money and a pension that will keep her comfortable for the rest of her life. Look, a couple of things, OK? My, my main message is this. Today is the 100th birthday of Red Fox. Yes, Born December 9th, 1922. So in honor of Sanford and Son, I, I, I don't want to get angry. You know, it's a special day. We should be honoring Red Fox today, honoring all the filthy jokes he told our parents and our grandparents on those filthy LP records they sold. <laughs> but uh, with that in mind, and all respect, um, talk yourself off a ledge on this. Nothing's actually changed. She's not caucusing with the GOP. I don't really enjoy uh, her need to be the center of attention. I think being the center of attention is like her brand at this point. But look at her voting history. Okay. She's not going to caucus with the GOP. She's going to stop a lot of reforms that the majority of Americans voted for. 81 million voted for the Biden agenda. That is the most popular candidate in the history of American elections. But she don't care. Now, you'll be thinking, okay, some people are saying, well, Bernie Sanders and Angus King do the same thing. And that's true. Bernie Sanders and Senator Angus King, they both run as independents, and they caucus with the Dems. There's a few differences. One is they're both above water with their voters. Kirsten Cinema, her approval rating is underwater with her home state. That's a big difference. The other big difference is we kind of know where Bernie Sanders and Angus King stand on the issues. They voted for changing the Senate rules to enable the passage of voting rights with only 51 votes, like so many other bills. Cinema. And Manchin voted against this, and it lost 52 to 48. They voted against vote just to have the 51 vote threshold just for voting rights. But they're bought and paid for. 
So don't be fooled when she says she's independent. She's the least independent senator. She is beholden to her donors. She has no independence whatsoever. Keep all this in mind as well. 70% of young voters in Arizona voted Democrat in this midterm election last month. 70%. So what's going to happen when she runs for re-election, if she runs for re-election in 2024? Victor, she said, Gen Z will make sure that she never sees political office again. And, and at the end of the day, look, she's doing this to stop Arizona Democrats from running a Democratic candidate in Arizona against her in a primary in 2024. That would split the vote between her and another candidate and give the Senate seat to whoever runs for the Republican side, which we can all presume will be Carrie Lake. That's what it's about. Did Kirsten Cinema hand a Senate seat to Carrie Lake today? I mean, switching parties might have been the only logical choice if she wants to extend her political career. A lot of hateful politicians keep getting reelected year after year, even though no one likes them, right? But by choosing to not be involved in the Democratic primary, at least now she knows she's only going to have to have one hard election rather than two. So most likely she'll run as an independent and then they'll run a Democrat against her. And what everyone's afraid of is that that ticket will split. And it'll allow Carrie Lake to get the Senate seat. So here's the deal. This is what she said 19 years ago about Joe Lieberman. And again, I've I've met Kirsten Sinema. I interviewed her. I had her as a guest on Current TV. And I praised her back then. I praised her when she was going to be the first openly bisexual senator. Now, I I, got to say, maybe she's just confused. But in 2003, she was talking about Joe Lieberman who flipped on the Democrats and began supporting George W. Bush anywhere he could. And she said back then, Joe Lieberman is a shame to Democrats. I don't even know why he's running. He seems to want to get Republicans voting for him. What kind of strategy is that? These voters of Arizona she speaks of so fondly, she has not held a town hall in Arizona since she took office four years ago. She has never, ever had the time or the inclination to travel to her home state and book a room and explain her positions to the voters who sent her to D.C. She has time to sit down with Jake Tapper to announce she's leaving the party. She has time to show up at fundraisers with Mitch McConnell and open up her purse for the most heinous of right-wing donors. She's been an independent for a long time. She gets off on the power. She's not someone who works with groups. Nothing has changed. It's all about her. She'll still caucus with the Democrats. She voted with Joe Biden 90% of the time. The question we now have is, will she run as a Democrat or an independent in 2024? Will she be replaced? Will Ruben Gallego be able to get elected? Or did she make Carrie Lake a senator today? I don't know, but here's what I do know, guys. Brittany Griner's coming back. Herschel Walker's going nowhere. The Trump organization is going down. Democrats will still control committees in the Senate. They will still get their nominees through. Democrats will still be able to get their judges through. They will still have... Their 51-seat majority. And Kirsten Cinema has voted with President Biden over 90% of the time. What do you do when someone you can't stand leaves but doesn't really leave? You just say it could have been worse. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. 
Figure Lending LLC DBA Figure. Equal Opportunity Lender. NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. So how did he do it? How did Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock pull off four wins in four elections in one state in two years? Well, let's be honest. He's got a great resume and he's a man of incredible integrity and charisma. But he did have help, committed help, the kind of help that Stacey Abrams told us we could all have. Now, if you listen to this show, you know, I've said for a long time that Democrats only strategy should be to clone Stacey Abrams 49 times and put them all around uh, in every state. But the reality is it's networks of people who are on the ground, who are knocking on doors, who are making the difference. And every time we see a politician pull off a win that we like, we know that there was thousands of committed people who went into it. Now, Adrian Shropshire is executive director of the Black Pack and the affiliated nonpartisan Black Progressive Action Coalition. She's a leader in developing model integral voter engagement programs that build voter power over multiple election cycles. And Black Pack put more than 3,000 paid canvassers in the field in Georgia, hitting a total of more than 3 million doors in the state. Folks, if you want to see the Democrats compete in states that were once written off as red, Adrian Shropshire knows exactly how to do it. It's a pleasure to welcome you to SiriusXM. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Congratulations. How exhausted were you and your team this Wednesday? You know, I have to say that people were uh, pretty pumped up. <laughs> I think um, winning, uh, you know, produces a lot of adrenaline. So mm. I think that, you know, folks knocked on a lot of doors, as as you said, over the course of the um, the runoff. And then, of course, there was all of the work that went into the general election um, to, you know, help get Senator Warnock um, to the to the runoff. So while while people were certainly tired, they were committed, as you said, um, very, very committed, um, not just to, you know, getting um, Senator Warnock reelected um, in, in a historic way, but also, you know, deeply committed to sending a message about what kind of political leadership is acceptable, um, what kind of political leadership is not, um, and also, you know, sending a message about what it means to be committed and um, to take seriously our responsibility to, you know, steward our democracy. And so, yes. uh, you know, the thousands of people who were out there knocking on doors on the independent side, um, us uh, and many others, um, and obviously Reverend Warnock's campaign um, did a fabulous job as well as uh, of turning out um, uh, voters uh, across the state. I mean, I, I mentioned that Black Pack put more than 3,000 paid canvassers uh, on the streets and, and hitting more than 3 million doors. Is the yeah. secret to try to not so much get people who, you know, might have voted Trump before, but rather to get people who didn't vote last time or maybe have mm-hmm. become citizens recently or have turned 18 recently or people mm-hmm. who are registered but just have lost faith in the system? I mean, it seems like there's so many avenues you have to go when it comes down to just increasing the turnout. Georgia is such an incredible success story. Yeah. I mean, the great news is that there was a coalitional effort on the ground um, where, you know, organizations essentially leaned into their um, to their own bases, right, into their own constituencies. And so for us, our target was black voters. Um, We, you know, um, we're very clear about which black voters we needed to talk to. We certainly wanted to talk to people who didn't show up in the general. So there were definitely people who did not vote on November 8th, right. um, who, you know, on in the runoff, you know, realized that they had another chance um, to make a contribution and they showed up and they, they did. 
Um, we targeted those folks. We targeted younger voters for sure. Um, we targeted people who, you know, showed up in the in the um, general election, but actually weren't quite clear about what the runoff meant. Um, we knocked on right. doors the week after Election Day and people said, oh, yes, I get it. There's a runoff. I'm going to be there in January. Right. Because they Ooh. they thought they had the same amount of time right. as they did in 2020, um, that there was two months. Um, and in fact, um, you know, the 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 incredible um, work that went into mobilizing the uh, all of the voters that got mobilized um, in this uh, cycle um, for this runoff, I should say, um, that was done in half the time. Uh, that we had in 2020, um, uh, following the 2020 general. Um, so you had, we probably reached the same scale. And, and when I say us, I mean Black Pack, uh, certainly, um, but also um, other parts of the coalition reached the same scale as we did in the 2021 runoff in half the time. So, you know, there was certainly, you know, some clarity about who needed to be mobilized, which communities needed to be mobilized, what the coalition, right, right was going to be, that was going to uh, win uh, the race for, for Reverend Warner. Um, but in the end, we're basically just talking to everybody, right? Like, so to be clear, like you can be cute <laughs> about how you do your targeting and all of that. Right. But in the end, we were essentially just talking to everybody um, because we had to. And, and, and um, again, the reason part one of the reasons certainly is because we needed to make sure that people had accurate information. Um, and we know that there's a lot of disinformation out there, a lot of misinformation. Uh, we needed to be, we needed to make sure that those people who were likely to turn out um, or who wanted to right, who realized that they had missed their opportunity on November 8th, we needed to make sure they had accurate information. You had a great interview in the Hill where you were talking about the Walker campaign. And for me, it struck me how deeply cynical it's been that Donald mm -hmm. Trump essentially handpicked this mm -hmm. former NFL star seemingly because uh, he was a black man who had some fame. And mm -hmm. the calculation was that that's all it will take to get black mm -hmm. voters to abandon the Democratic Party and Reverend Warnock. It, it just mm -hmm. seemed so the worst kind of institutionalized racism and stereotyping and to say nothing of yeah. the actual man they chose. But I'm dying right. to know what yeah. your thoughts were on this subject, as well as the thoughts of, of your workers in the field and mm -hmm. the voters they spoke with. It's deeply offensive. Um, you know, I think that the, the, I, you know, a couple of things, maybe, right. The idea that, well, the Democrats have a black man, let's go find us a black man, right? Like Boom. that's yeah. offensive you know, all yeah. by itself. The assumption that you can just put anybody up, right, does not matter their character, does not matter whether or not they are aligned um, with uh, around the, the issues of, of most uh, concern and of most importance to black voters, um, that you can just throw someone up there and that black people will be so confused, right, um, that they will just vote for whoever because they don't know any better, right? Like that kind of, it's, it's beyond cynicism, oh, right? It is, a, is it an utter disrespect um, for black people and their participation in our democracy and for their clear, very clear understanding about where our country needs to go and where they where, where they're prepared to take it to. Right. So to sort of just put up anyone is, you know, both was deeply offensive. Um, but there's also this question of I mean, I, I said it like there's, you know, black people are making decisions about who they're going to vote for based on policy issues. Thank you. You know, yes. issues that are important to the black community. They're also making that decision around character. Right. And when we talk the voters that we talk to, 
um, all voters, young men in particular, um, were sort of outraged that anyone would suggest to them that Mr. Walker was a role model for them. They rejected that idea. They were, you know, they sort of repudiated um, the notion um, that somehow they should see um, someone with a with the kind of um, deeply um, upsetting, uh, you know, allegations against him um, from the violence issues that came up um, to the sort of hypocrisy around, um, you know, uh, abortion rights, um, all of those sorts of things. I think people were just deeply offended by rejected. And that's certainly the folks that were, you know, that were part of our team, um, as well as voters um, on the doors. And they would tell you, they would say it's embarrassing. Um, it's embarrassing. And there were those folks who laughed at, you know, thought it was, you know, it was sort of comical and laughed because they just couldn't believe that that anyone right. would take his candidacy seriously. But there were also those people who were deeply disturbed and in some ways saddened um, by the fact that he was being um, they felt that he was being used by the Republican establishment in such a cynical way. And so there was sort of an empathy on behalf of, of many black voters, um, but mostly people saw it as disgusting and offensive um, and were prepared to reject it out of hand. And, and they did. It's it's one thing if, you know, they appoint, say, a Clarence Thomas to undo the legacy of Thurgood Marshall, or if they appoint a Ruth Bader Ginsburg to destroy the legacy, um, if they appointed Amy Coney Barrett to destroy the legacy uh-huh, of Ruth yes. Bader Ginsburg, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, yep. you said in your interview in The Hill, when you think about the sort of multiple stereotypes that Herschel Walker represents, mm-hmm. that tells you a lot about who Republicans think black people are and what they think that they will accept in terms of political leadership. It's, it's that's, just, I'm yeah, so that's proud correct. of the voters of your state. Well, and it's not even, it's not even, um, just Herschel Walker, when we look at the candidates that ran in this cycle, in this 2022 midterms, the black, you know, record number of black Republicans, I think, um, yes. ran for offices up and down the ballot, but they fit a mold. Right. And they fit and that mold that they fit is one that has been created and designed by the Republican Party. And we already know that this is a party who um, is not just tolerant of racists and white supremacists and Nazis, but has acquiesced to them. Right. And so the idea that you could put up your version of what black leadership should be right, like your stereotypical a notion of what a black person is and then say to black people who have been striving in this country for centuries um, and very clearly uh, developing a, a course, uh, you know, b- developing a, a political power that is based on um, substance right that is based on character and that is based on competency right Thank and you. that and 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 electing leaders and supporting leaders um, that uh, meet that criteria, and that you would put up candidates across the country that are in fact the exact opposite of that, and then demand that black people support you, um, you know, is in fact the height of you know sort of racism and racist racist yeah. ideas in this country. Amen. And again, I'm getting very used to profusely thanking black women after every election for saving democracy at this point. (laughs) But now I got to thank I got to thank Gen Z people as well uh, from this election. And one of the points that really hit me was overall, the youth vote is down, but young Democratic voters are (laughs) showing up even in a midterm in record Mm -hmm. numbers. I mean, young people are less, but Democrat young people are more. 
Well, it's interesting because I think that the, the one of the ways that, that we should be framing this is how embarrassed young Republicans are to show up and vote for these people. Right. Great, and so great, when we grow, talk about great, yes. right, when we when we talk about young Democrats coming that the youth vote is down overall. Well, who is not showing up? Young Republicans. And part of it is because they share this. It's, it's, they, they are in the same place on, on many issues, particularly these sort of I hate to even call them cultural issues because they're not right. Um, but issues, whether it's around LGBTQ rights, whether it's around um, women's reproductive rights, whether it's around um, even criminal justice reform and, you know, other kinds of justice issues, we are seeing um, younger Republicans just refusing to show up and support the candidates who are on the opposite side of that and um, younger Democratic voters being energized, um, being energized around it. I remember a couple of years ago, we were doing some polling, um, I guess it was probably leading into um, the 2020 election, and um, we were comparing generations. So it was polling of black voters and we we're comparing generations um, around a series of issues. And one of the mm-hmm. things that struck me is that younger voters, Gen Z voters and the civil rights legacy generation voters were very close <laughs> in terms of where they're, you know, where they lined up on a whole set of issues um, and particularly around issues um, that were that we you know laid out for them that were that were about racism and discrimination and how they felt right about where the country was on around on those issues. And it strikes me as is the reason why that strikes me as interesting is because you have a, a legacy civil rights generation who lived through Jim Crow, fought to end Jim Crow and to sort of transform the country, to transition the country into something that was more headed more toward, you know, a, a more perfect union um, and have been fighting ever since. Um, you have a new generation of young people in Gen Z whose, um, you know, life has been uh, essentially, right, the first black president and then the horrible ushering in of Trumpism and, yeah. you know, um, the sort of, again, acquiescence to Proud Boys and white supremacy. Um, and they're sort of live and, and rolling back of rights, right? Civil rights, um, voting rights, and sort of rolling back of the rights that the civil rights legacy generation fought for. Now they're fighting for that stuff all over again. And one of the things, and so that's, that's why, you know, in some ways it makes sense that those two generations would have similar feelings about where we are and what we need to do. But it mm-hmm. also, you suggest that we are creating um, through this process of, you know, increase in sort of civic participation, um, new, not only new activists, but a generation that is deeply committed to rights, that is deeply committed to justice, and is deeply committed to taking action around those things, right? So when you're afraid um, of, you know, gun violence, both on your campuses, um, your school campuses, and in your neighborhood, you're going to take action around that stuff. And we're seeing that from this generation, right? When you're concerned about access to the ballot box, you're going to take action on that issue. And we're seeing that not only in the fight for voting rights, but also in their participation in voting, right? They are sending a message about who they want to be as a generation. And I think that it's an incredible thing to see. And I think that we can all be heartened um, about, you know, the potential for for our democracy with them leading. To say nothing of the fact that, you know, these young people are turning out for the party that is supporting student loan debt relief, that is supporting decriminalizing cannabis at the federal level, that is supporting women's reproductive freedoms, LGBT equality. Um, But I got to tell you, I'm watching all this footage in Georgia and as inspiring as it is on, on election day, You know, the same images that we see all across the country, these long lines to vote Mm -hmm. at like the Cobb County Elections Office in Marietta, where, you know, I mean, are the long lines themselves, which I, I don't see a lot of 
I don't see a lot of Caucasians waiting mm-hmm. in Georgia five hours to vote in lines that stretch mm-hmm. a mile long. Are the long mm-hmm. lines we're very used to seeing in all these Georgia elections not proof in and of themselves of voter suppression? Well, they should be. Um, and and to be clear, like voters don't see it. You know, there's a, there's there's on the one hand, there's a real um, desire to sort of to applaud people, right, for persevering and standing in those lines and getting their vote cast. Um, but they don't see it as a badge of honor, right? They see it as a very clear example of how they are being harassed. Um, they see it as a very clear example of how they they are being suppressed and or an attempt to depress the vote. So no, it's it is very broken. Right. It is very broken when people have to stand in line for hours and hours on end just to be able to cast their ballot. And we know that it happens more in some precincts than others um, or in some, you know, at some voting locations um, than others. But it is it is, um, uh, you know, sort of a shocking reality in terms of our understanding about, you know, the, the effort to, you know, just frustrate people out yes. of participating. Right. And that's, and that's, that, that's really what it feels like it is. And people don't, again, like, you know, people, people are determined, right. They're going to stand on those lines. They got it now. Like the, um, this is not, you know, Georgia voters first rodeo, right. With this, they are, they got it. They're veterans at this. Um, they don't appreciate it. Right. They do not appreciate right. having to stand. You know, they, we thought it was going to rain all over, um, you know, yeah. pouring down rain on, on Election Day. And so people are scrambling to figure out, like, how are we going to make sure that people have umbrellas when there's a law that says you can't provide people with anything, can't give them a bottle exactly. of water, can't give them a snack. Exactly. So what, what do we do when people are forced to stand out in the, in, in the rain for three hours? Senior citizens, right, standing out in, oh. in, in the rain and in, in uncomfortable conditions. Um, it's unacceptable. Everyone recognizes it. And I think that, yep. you know, that's why this fight continues. Why do we need to continue to expand the cinema? I mean, the cinema, sorry, the Senate, (laughs) (laughs) Um, your friend and her, you know, um, forever kind of narcissism. Um, But why do we need to continue to expand the, um, the, 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 the Senate majority and to, and to, you know, bring, bring, uh, win back the house. It's because we have to be able to pass federal legislation. We cannot allow this. is The reason why there's, there's uh, the the voting rights act um, existed was because we cannot, rely on states to actually make sure that everyone has equal access um, to the to the ballot. We have to rely on the federal government um, to, to provide that kind of uh, cover. Um, and so we need we need federal legislation. And so that's why, you know, it's why we continue to do this work. It's the reason why we continue to show up in states across the country um, in order to be able to you know mobilize people, not just on election day. That's important, certainly. But we also think that it's important that we re-engage people after election day. That's when the real work starts. Exactly. That's when we engage people to hold folks accountable to say now please move on the thing that you talked about during your campaign get this thing to happen right so that's so i think federal legislation is important and we continue to drive toward that we have you know some other opportunities to make to make that happen as the folks on the ground continue to deal with their own state legislatures um, and their own governors before I let you go, I just want to say congratulations again for all the good news. Um, Thank you. For the uh, for you know House Democrats electing your friend Congressman Jeffries as Congress's first Black Party <laughs> leader. Yes, I think that we are. You know, one of the things that I think is important to think about um, as we look at the Democratic Party, and even when we think about the shifts in the the presidential primary um, uh, state process, you know, I think that we we often you know think about Black voters as being the backbone of uh, of the Democratic Party. Um, I also think that it's important for us to understand that voters across the country, regardless of what demographic you know uh, uh, you know circle they fall in, um, are electing um, and supporting Black 
black leadership across the country. And so when we think about who is the Democratic Party, we really need to look at who the leadership of the Democratic Party is and stop yeah. assuming in some ways that the, Dem- the, the leadership of the Democratic Party is white um, because it is not in many ways. Right. That's you right. have there, you know, Kamala Harris exists. Right. Hakeem yeah. Jeffries exists. Uh, Jamie Harrison exists. The four, uh, you know, um, largest cities in the country are run by black Democrats, right? Karen Bass is real, right? right? And so um, when we think about, you know, who we are calling on in this moment to really hold up and shore up um, democracy, um, we are really looking to the broad diversity that is our country, right? Is the broad diversity that is the Democratic Party um, and asking everyone to step up and to step in um, to the kind of leadership that we need to be able uh, to both transform our country, move our country again, back on the track to a more perfect union and I think mm. that, you know, we are seeing um, leaders from across the spectrum um, step into that space and and voters are electing them. Right. Exactly. Um, and ensuring that we have the type of leadership that we need to, to move our country forward. So um, I'm really proud of all my friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a delight to speak with you and to end a week with so much positivity with this conversation. Adrian Schopschreier is the executive director of Black Pack and the affiliated nonpartisan Black Progressive Action Coalition. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your wonderful work? At Adrian Schropp um, on Twitter and uh, at Vote Black Pack to follow the organization on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Brilliant. Please come back and see us anytime. Such a pleasure. Have a great weekend. We're taking a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls at 866 997 4748. I'm John Fugelsang. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm so excited to welcome Mark Caputo to the show. He is senior national political reporter for NBC News. He helped establish Politico's Florida Bureau way back in 2015, covering Florida's politics and policy. In 2019, Mark joined Politico's national desk and covered Biden's presidential campaign. For NBC News, Mr. Caputo has compiled a really in-depth and searing look at the Herschel Walker campaign from the inside as the wheels gradually fell off and yet somehow kept managing to fall off again. The piece for NBC News is called Inside the Turbulent, Doomed Campaign of Herschel Walker. It's a great pleasure to welcome Mark Caputo to SiriusXM. Hey, John, uh, I appreciate you having me here. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for writing the piece. Um, wow, the access that you got and uh, the people who talked to you both on the record and off the record for this, I, I, I have to say it, I, I never thought I could feel so much sympathy and compassion for people who would willingly work for a Herschel Walker campaign. But it seems like this was not an easy gig for any of the GOP operatives who signed on. That's true. One of the complicated things in writing a story like this is, you know, as uh, Hyman Roth says in The Godfather 2, this is the business we chose, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. so, you know, uh, at a certain point where, you know, we're all uh, shipped over to quotes Oscar Wilde, like we're all lying in the gutter. Some of us are looking at the stars. So, I mean, the reality is, is, is everyone kind of knew the deal. But what made Walker's campaign kind of interesting was his his cluelessness in not realizing that his celebrity would not just translate into an instant win and the involvement of his wife. Uh, One of the complicated things of writing a story like this is you frequently and there's a sexist element to it. Yeah. We'll hear like this candidate's spouse blamed for his problems. But there's pretty good evidence here that. the candidate's wife was pretty problematic. 
but ultimately the candidate owns the campaign and and that's why i lost yeah i mean correct it, it sort of had the you know spinal tap uh david st hubbins girlfriend decides to come on the tour vibe a couple of times and you're right it is terribly sexist <laughs> and, and it belongs the failure belongs to the candidate uh and his party but i have to admit i i, I learned a lot about julie blanchard and it seems, and, and hey, I'm happy Herschel Walker has a healthy, happy marriage. That's great, because we've learned a lot about Herschel, and the fact that he's in a sustainable marriage is good news for the world. But it does seem that the campaign was constantly having to shift messaging and have everything sorted and vetted by not one, but almost a, a pair of co-candidates by yeah, Walker and Julie Blanchard. Right. They, uh, Walker and Julie Blanchard, Herschel and Julie, were essentially just referred to in the campaign as they or them. They, they were essentially kind of one unit. Yeah. And the problem with them, according to staff, just early on is they, they weren't really able to get straight answers out of him. When you're going to run for a major seat and running for U.S. Senate in a closely divided Senate is a major thing. I mean, this is a club of 100, the most exclusive club in the world. And you're going to have every bit of your soul ripped apart. Right. And as a result, campaigns need to vet you ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And... Your own campaign will do opposition research on you to find out the problems that you're going to face in the campaign to figure out how to deal with it. He was sort of resisted that vetting process. But early on in the summer of 2021, three consultants that he hired mm-hmm. said they hired a law firm that took just two weeks and pulled, put together a 500 page opposition research book on Herschel Walker. And they're like, look, man, you got a lot of problems. Uh, you know, it took us just two weeks to do this. And God only knows what else is out there. But he pressed yeah. ahead. And uh, it turned out that, um, you know, in the in the winter, they realized that the candidate, the staff did, they realized the candidate wasn't being very straightforward with them. They didn't have access to his uh, former girlfriends, the mothers of his children. He's got four kids with four different women. And one of the things in your private life, which can become public on a campaign, is whether you've had toxic relationships with prior people, spouses, you know, the mothers of your children. Staff was prohibited, essentially inhibited from talking to some of these women. One of these women turned out to be one of the people who accused Walker of pressuring her and paying for her to get an abortion. That's right. Had staff had the opportunity to vet them. Who knows? Maybe they would have known they didn't. They got blindsided. And well, the rest is history. The hubris. I mean, it, it's Trumpian for Herschel to think that his celebrity and charisma. And let's be honest, he's he's a very likable guy in many ways. I've always had a nice feeling towards Herschel Walker before this campaign. But to think that they could hide not just um, uh, alleged multiple abortions from his own staff and his own research team, but um, multiple undocumented children he had had. Uh, I, I don't know if his wife knew about him, but his campaign staff certainly didn't. And it, ironically, it seems that, you know, we've come to really be used to um, to his son, Christian, being an antagonist to his father and declaiming his father. But for all the press attention to Christian's condemnation of Herschel, you document how early on in this process, young Christian Walker may have saved his dad's campaign. Right. So in the winter of 2021, Herschel Walker sort of posted 4 a.m. on different nights or different mornings. I don't know what, are, what you consider 4 a.m., right? Mm-hmm. These stream of consciousness videos on Twitter where he's just giving his, med- you know, Herschel Walker gives his meditations. And they're, they were strange. They were bizarre. They were rambling. The campaign tried to stop him. They couldn't. They reached out to Christian Walker knowing that he had a good relationship with his dad at the time. And Christian was able to put an end to it. But Christian had told me 
and the campaign had told me that he had mentioned them like, hey, you know, he's got other kids out there. The campaign didn't really know that. And so that's when, again, the winter of 2021, winter of 2022, the campaign did a second vetting and opposition research right. book on its own candidate just to find out what was going on. So by the time June rolled around, when stories of these kids were coming around and Herschel Walker, according to staff, wasn't being very forthcoming, they already had opposition research book into their own candidate knowing what the deal was. So, now, you know, that was just a yeah. very... I've never really heard of that level of dysfunction in the campaign with a candidate. No, I mean, and again, you know, for a lot of folks, the only time you ever hear opposition research is maybe in relation to the Steele dossier. But the reality is every campaign does opposition research on their opponents. And most campaigns do opposition research on their own candidates. So they will know what the other side will throw at them in the campaign and the debate. But Mark, is it is it that common for a campaign to have to do two oppo researches on their own side? I don't know if I've ever heard of that before. No, Herschel Walker was an uncommon candidate. And so he had an uncommon campaign. You know, one of the things he said that I thought was pretty interesting, uh, just as a point of departure, was you're talking about kind of the hubris of Herschel Walker. If you think about it from his perspective, this is a man who from his uh, early 20s, if not from his teen years, was a god. You know, you're in yeah. Georgia. And you're the greatest running back in the United States. And you win a Heisman Trophy. And you sort of, or he, sort of just kind of rode that. And the celebrity of that makes it difficult sometimes to comprehend certain other realities. And one of the realities is this, is Herschel Walker is a brand. Herschel Walker was yeah. a brand. And his brand at the time before he ran was beloved football star. Right. And what he didn't realize is that Political campaigns, by and large, are marketing campaigns. Just like Coca-Cola sells soda, campaigns sell the candidate. The difference between the marketing campaign of, say, Coca-Cola or McDonald's, right, and a political campaign is that in McDonald's marketing campaigns, they're going to spend 100% of their budget telling you how great Big Macs are. Exactly. In a political campaign, if McDonald's was a candidate, it would spend 80% of its money telling you that Burger King is going to give you cancer. And <laughs> Herschel Walker was Herschel Walker was totally unaware what damage his brand would receive and what sort of onslaught he would get. And yeah. the rest is history. Well, you begin the piece documenting how when the runoff was less than a day old, they had a huge internal shouting match because Herschel didn't want to ask for money in his ads. He just wanted to come out and trash Reverend Warnock. And he felt that it was beneath him to come out and do these ads where he would, in his words, you document, he said he would sound like a used car salesman. In reality, well, that, was, that uh, was one of his, yeah, that was one of his staffers who said that. Like they kind okay. of realized like what sort of candidate it was. So he had one staffer who was like, look, when you go on Fox News, because that's essentially all he was limiting himself to, right? When you exactly. go on Fox News, here is the message he needs to deliver. Look, they've thrown the the kitchen sink at me. You know, I'm still up. I'm still fighting. This is close. Go to teamherschel.com and contribute money. They wanted him to deliver that message. Well, the other consultants like, eh, you know, number one, we need to spend more time attacking Walker. And, you know, there was some debate about whether Herschel or pardon me, attacking Warnock. And there was some yeah. debate about whether Walker could really deliver that concise and clear a message anyway. Right. And right. so, yeah, uh, the one consultant said to the one like, look, this is not how if you think that's how it works, you're smoking drugs. And the other one's like, look. If you think we're going to win a campaign with no money, you're smoking drugs. And 
four-letter words were exchanged, <laughs> a swearing, cursing. Well, you know, Warnock did outraise Walker. Walker did lose. Uh, I, he didn't lose simply because he didn't ask for money properly on Fox News. But it was just an example of sort of the dysfunction in the campaign. And, you know, yeah. in, in, in the piece, I sort of trace how that in June, as we had talked about before, when the campaign reached back out to Christian Walker by text message and Christian Walker shared yes. the text messages with me, they were like, hey, look, this is a direct quote. Would you be open to talking to H.W., that is Herschel Walker, about mm-hmm. some of the messaging stuff? I think he listens to you more than any of us. Now, understand, here's a staffer reaching out to the son of a candidate saying, look, we need help dealing the, the with the teenage son, the teenage son of the well, candidate no, he's, who doesn't live with the candidate. I, I think oh, he's 23. 23. OK, sorry. Yeah, my right. apologies. Yeah, try, well, trust me, at my age, everyone seems like a teenager. Right. <laughs> uh, right. And, and then and then, you know, he replied, like, well, what do you mean by messaging? And, and here's a staffer says, you know, stop being a moron on TV. Read your playbook before you open your mouth. And then the staffer later said, we're just desperate. I mean, that's in June of 2022, right? That, that's, that's a real problem. You have shared that text message, by the way, on your Twitter, and it's really remarkable to see it. He tells us, man, tell your father to stop being a moron on TV. I, it, it, it shows the desperation in the campaign. But, you know, it's, it's curious to me because you talk to a lot of people, and it seems like some of the staffers who are speaking on the record are just saying how positive everything was, and they're, they're putting a brave face on it. The ones who shared their stories on background were another story. The fact that some of these revelations aren't surprising doesn't mean they're not still shocking, you know? And I'm curious, what, what surprised you the most as you spoke with the folks who thought they were working for a regular GOP Senate campaign? I can't share my favorite anecdote, and I really want to. Um, oh, no. Because I was sworn to secrecy. Yeah, but, oh, it, no. I mean, it, put this way, but it's one of these <laughs> quotidian minor things, right? right. Uh, but it's just, kind of, it's just kind of emblematic or symbolic. But what I found surprising was just the sort of the fact that that campaign was as dysfunctional on the inside as it was on the outside. What you thought about Herschel Walker as a candidate and how bad he was, he was that bad internally. And don't get me wrong, staff really liked him. They personally liked him. Yeah, I get that. But the, the portrait that gets assembled in talking to people is, this guy had trouble ta- just telling the truth. Now, whether he was intentionally lying or whether he just kind of created his own realities and didn't realize he was lying, I'll leave that to psychologists and the like. But the reality is, is I've never heard uh, I've never heard this many staffers over such a long period of time describe such a consistent level of dysfunctional behavior from a candidate in a major U.S. Senate race. And other Republicans who ran against him in the primary, they knew what was coming. Right. And they were like, look, don't do this. Don't do this. But there was a limited amount of time. The Herschel Walker brand for Georgia Republicans during the primary was sterling. And he just cruised yeah. to victory. And the Warnock campaign and the Democrats could not believe the gift that they were given. Understand which one, which which gift, the the gift of Herschel Walker. Oh, I see. Uh, because I mean, it was it was still pretty close. It was still alarmingly close. Well, you know, understand this: Georgia is still an SEC state. It's a southeastern conference state. It's still a right. southern state. Yeah. And if you look at the twenty twenty two election results in November. All statewide Republicans won their races by relatively comfortable margins. Granted, that's a swing state. It's a swing state. There's only one candidate, one Republican candidate, who didn't win in November. That was Herschel Walker. There's a reason for that. 
Yeah. Right. There's only one Democrat who won statewide. And that was Warnock. I mean, understand, you know, Warnock is a good candidate. Like it wasn't just the terribleness of Herschel Walker's candidacy. Correct. And his bio or better said his past. But Warnock is disciplined. He's a fantastic speaker. Yeah. And the Democrats had very good opposition research and they opened up a can of whoop ass on him like we have seen. <laughs> By some estimates, the Republican estimates, it might have been a three to one ratio in the end, 300 million to 100 million that yes. was spent on this race. I'm not I'm I'm not sure it's going to sh- quite shake out that way, but there might have been a good hundred million dollars spent to keep Warnock in the Senate. And, you, you know, I mean, he established himself as being a really good disciplined candidate. It was interesting just to watch him on the campaign trail. Now, here, I can share this in, inside story uh, at one point the Republicans wanted to start attacking Warnock for his association with Biden because President Biden's approval ratings were just bad in Georgia. They're bad in a lot of places, but really bad in Georgia. So they wanted to tie Warnock to it. And they went through, Republicans did, hours of video trying to find one time where Warnock said the words President Biden, and he never did. He's that Hmm. disciplined like a very disciplined candidate. And also he had a good message. He, he kept talking about, you know, a, kind of a more centrist, broad message reaching across right. the aisle, uh, you know, speaking in aspirational tones. Meanwhile, Walker, what was he doing when he wasn't kind of getting bizarre meditations about Fright Night and the differences of <laughs> vampires versus werewolves? Yeah. You know, he, was, he was obsessing about pronouns, right? Yep. And oh, yeah. while that can be good to gin up a portion of a Republican base, you know, you're not going to win a statewide election if you keep focusing on parts of speech related to sexuality, sexual orientation. Yeah. Gender identity. It's just not yep. it's not a winning message in a swing state. You know, I never would have guessed that that um, explaining the plot of the film Fright Night could hurt a candidate more than having secret out of wedlock children. But here we are in the 21st century. Uh, I, I do. Go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say, uh, you know, the. The, the you know rules for radicals, the Saul Alinsky, um, uh, yeah. 1960s era community organizer who came up with these kind of radical ideas. He talked about how one of man's pot- most potent weapons is ridicule. And right. when Herschel Walker sounded like ridiculous talking about vampires and werewolves, and then you just saw that brutal takedown of Obama, that was a good example of how ridicule was just a potent, potent weapon that just ruined Walker. Yeah, indeed. As John Lennon said, uh, ridicule and nonviolence are the two things they can't handle. I, I, I do want to <laughs> uh, shift really quick and ask you about a recent piece you did for NBC because um, you forced a reckoning on me, sir. This piece was the inside story of Trump's explosive dinner with Ye and Nick Fuentes. You really got folks in Mar-a-Lago to talk, and I know Milo spoke with you. But, um, you know, Trump has said he didn't know Fuentes or his background when they dined together, which seemed rather ridiculous. That The guy leading in the 2024 nominating polls, the the former president, just sits down to eat with anyone. I I did a whole rant about, is anyone vetting Mar-a-Lago attendance at all? But it, it turns out after reading your piece that Donald Trump may have been, I, I let me get these words out, he, he may have been innocent in this regard. Well, well, he's only so innocent. Donald Trump over a period of time, according to the sources I spoke to, had spoken to Kanye West or Ye in, in an increasing uh, amount of conversations after and as Ye was getting canceled for making anti-Semitic <laughs> remarks. What a great time to have him over. 
Right. Like, guess who's coming to dinner? Right. So, I mean, so you've got one guy who's an avowed and quite clear anti-Semite. But understand this is that the Donald Trump we know is 76 years old. He is a man who used to live and get his information on Twitter and on television. His Twitter was taken away from him. It was only recently restored. So all of the information that he by and large receives outside of polls and news clippings that staff put in front of him Mm -hmm. is going to be from Fox, maybe from OAN, maybe from Newsmax. And so they're not covering Nick Fuentes. He has no idea who he is, according to multiple people we spoke to, according to Nick Fuentes, according to Milo Yiannopoulos. So it does look to a degree uh, like, uh, I I don't want to say it's funny, but kind of a comedy of errors that eventually led Nick Fuentes to sit down at a dinner table with Kanye West and then some other random guy and uh, a political advisor who used to work for Trump back in 2016. I would love to have been a fly on the wall that dinner. I mean, yeah, it just at first I just thought, well, hang on a second. There's Secret Service all over the place. He's got aides around him. People knew who Nick Fuentes. I I knew who Nick Fuentes is and I'm a clown. But But you're on Twitter. You pay attention to that stuff. Exactly. You're not a 76-year-old guy. I know, I know. What what a lot of people don't (laughs) understand is this. And and I don't want to defend the Secret Service, by the way. And I probably will get in trouble for saying this. But out of all the federal agencies like Secret Service, well, it's, it's hard to say who's worse and who's more opaque, but Secret Service is pretty terrible. So I don't want to defend them. That having been said, they've got a job, and it's to keep Donald Trump from being shot. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, they're in a frustrating position at Mar-a-Lago. It's a members-only beach club where people come and go at all times during season. Yeah. And at a certain point, according to Secret Service and Trump's own campaign acknowledges it is the Trump organization or Mar-a-Lago that's in charge of who comes and who goes. That's like right. Secret Service did its job. He didn't get killed. Like club security didn't do its job because he got embarrassed. Right. That's not Secret <laughs> Service's job is to prevent him from being embarrassed. You're right. You're right. But I think a key figure here is someone who, uh, like Kanye West, probably won't be invited back to Mar-a-Lago anytime soon. And that's Karen Giorno. Who is she, Mark? Karen Jordan was a 2016 campaign advisor to Trump. Now, from what we what I'm able to gather is Karen Jordan met Milo Yiannopoulos through Laura Loomer, who was, uh, you know, kind of a right wing provocateur through her. Story's one of her fantastic. Story's fantastic. Yeah. Go ahead. There's many there's many layers to this. onion, Right. And uh, so she got to know Milo. According to Karen, she gets a call. Let's see. This this dinner happens on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Right. She gets a call like on Tuesday morning. Like, hey, do you want to pick up Kanye West at the airport and take it to Mar-a-Lago? And she's like, well, fuck, yeah, of course I do. Like, who wouldn't at that point? Yes, there's the yeah. anti-Semitism stuff. But, you know, you're this is just like so weird. Now, according to Karen, she thought that this was all organized between everyone. According to Milo, it kind of wasn't. And unbeknownst right. to Karen, according to her and according to Nick Quintas, with whom we spoke, when these guys arrive, Nick is just introduced as Nick, right? And an example of like how weird this was to somebody to have my story, Kanye West insisted that the flight from LA to Florida be a coach on Spirit Airlines, but they couldn't get a Spirit flight, so they booked United. But rather than fly into West Palm Beach, 
which is very close to Palm Beach and Mar-a-Lago, the flight was booked to Miami, which is a good 80 miles away. And it landed at five o'clock. So you got to go through three rush hours Insane. to get to Mar-a-Lago. Insane. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's just a good example of the weird dysfunction. Anyway, Karen goes down there. She drives these guys from Miami all the way up. She says, like, midway through the drive, uh, <laughs> she realizes Kanye West has no clue about Mar-a-Lago. And everyone's wearing jeans. And you're They're not supposed jeans. to be able to go into you're not supposed to be able to go into Mar-a-Lago with jeans on. So she points that out to them. And Kanye is like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I, I'm going to get it. It's not a problem. But he says, I don't think Nick's going to get it. She's like, why? And then apparently there was some sort of hush silence. She goes, Nick, what's your last name? He's like Fuentes. And she, and she says at that and point, she she's knew. like, oh, my God, I'm going to kill Milo for this. Right. Because Milo's going to tell but it gets weird because she, she went to pick them up and she's the Trump campaign contact. But apparently she had forgotten her driver's license this day, the same day as the epic road trip. <laughs> right. This the is true. crazy. Well, she was also, by the way, she was also in a loner car because her other car was in the shop. Uh, FYI, I didn't have that detail in the story either. I think it was like a, it was an infinity. Um, so, yeah. So she drives up to Mar-a-Lago and she's like, well, shit, we're not even on the guest list. But. The week before Donald Trump had announced and she was there and so she was already on a list. And hey, you're with Kanye West, right? So she pulls into the Mar-a-Lago security zone or, you know, wherever it is where you drive your car up. And she's realizes she's forgotten her license for some reason, like at the dealer, at the, the auto shop. Again, she's got to loan her car. So she's able to show her credit card with her name on it. And based on that, and based on the fact that she's got Kanye West, they wave them all through. Come on in. Now, okay. <laughs> now there, there are going to be different accounts of this. But as we were told, the well, this was pretty clear from what we gather. Donald Trump was supposed to just have dinner privately with Kanye West, right? According to Donald Trump, these people say, like, he just wanted to help a friend who was going through troubles and blah, 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 blah. But Milo Yiannopoulos, who was then the advisor to Kanye West, at this point, had developed a great aversion to Donald Trump. He thought Donald Trump was a fraud for not standing by the January 6th rioters or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call them. Yeah. And, you know, raise money in their name but not help them, et cetera. Nick Fuentes harbors similar beliefs. So mm -hmm. they had calculated that, hey, if Kanye shows up with Nick and all these guys, Trump is going to be unable to, to resist being the grand host. And he's going to want to have like a big to do and kind of show off. Kanye West to everybody. And indeed, some of the people I spoke to afterward who talked to Trump, Trump admitted, yeah, I thought it would be fun for the, the members to see Kanye West. Okay. Seemingly forgetting that Kanye West had said he was going to go, quote, death con three on the Jews, right? Yes, of course. So at Mar-a-Lago, there's a cult of personality aspect to this. If Donald Trump shows up at dinner time, everyone stands up and applauds him. That's right. So there's Kanye West, Nick Fuentes, this other guy, and Karen Giorno, who are there. <laughs> Donald Trump comes in the dining room. Everyone stands up and applauds. They see Kanye West. There's no way to hide it at this point. And apparently in conversation, uh, they agree, like, hey, let's go have dinner out on the patio with everyone instead of Trump and Kanye uh, dining together. And at this point, it's tough for word not to leak out. And someone right. had spotted Nick Quintus and realized who he was and, you know, it wound up not being the photo op that Donald Trump wanted.
Yeah, well, it also seems to be rather contentious because from from what you document, and by the way, it's it's a pleasure to read this piece. Um, it, it was a bit of a heated dinner, and it, it seemed to begin with them all criticizing Trump, and and Trump turns around and actually criticizes Kim Kardashian. To me, I, I don't, I can't believe we're having this conversation about a president. You realize? I know. It's just, it's just, I'm sorry for laughing. But I mean, this, yeah, is, this is the this is the big all you can discriminate buffet, and they're 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 just kind of like arguing. Right. Well, apparently it started off friendly and Trump was very impressed with Nick Fuentes, who, if you talk to Nick Fuentes, is a very smart, engaging guy. Hmm. Uh, Only, you know, if you start to ask him about or you listen to him long enough. Right. uh, About, you know, non-whites. For a racist Jew hating incel, he's very clever. Yes, I'm with you. No, he's 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 clever and funny. But then you're like, oh, my God, this guy believes and says really horrible things. Right. Yeah. But allegedly this stuff didn't come up at dinner. I must admit Considering Kanye West's subsequent performances in various venues, it seems like he's unable to not say anti-Semitic things. But we'll put that aside. <laughs> uh, at this dinner, <laughs> right? No, he's like he's got he's got like anti-Semitic Tourette syndrome. That was like, all Trump uh, said. Trump said he didn't say anything anti-Semitic at dinner. Yeah, basically. Wow. Yeah. Right. Put the what a, what a review. Great. <laughs> yeah, not denounce anti-Semitism. Just like we didn't talk about it at dinner, right? So, uh, but at the dinner, like Fuentes was apparently very uh, just buttered Trump up, talking about you were my hero and blah blah yeah. blah blah, etc. But then the screws started to turn. Like he told Trump, like, basically, you're not the Trump of 2016, right? Like, you're basically becoming the establishment. He's right. like, like the white supremacist told the former president and current presidential candidate that he he was in danger of becoming an establishment bore. Like, of all things to really get under Donald Trump's skin and to, and to kind of stoke his paranoia, that's it. And then... Kanye West lays the wood by saying, look, I'm going to run for president. I'm going to run against you. Why don't you join my ticket and be my running mate? This did yeah. not go over. well. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it does seem like Donald Trump in this case was telling the truth that he didn't know Nick Fuentes and that he didn't know who that, that he was coming. I guess I owe him an apology. I, I thought he was lying about it. But after reading your reporting, it really does seem that he got blindsided and some might even say um, set up by Milo Yiannopoulos. At least that's how the ever opportunistic Milo is trying to spin it now. Yeah. All, and all of the people in Trump's orbit think he walked into a trap as well. Now, Trump doesn't want to admit that, right? Because then he of would be weak. And there's one thing Donald Trump doesn't want to look, and that's weak. Trump advisor is the weirdest job in the world. I'm sorry. All these people that need to be fired, but don't get fired. I, I just don't understand it. Before I let you go, I do want to talk to you about your, your recent piece about Florida Republicans. It does seem that in, in your beautiful state, Ron DeSantis is by far the most popular political figure that has ever lived. Um, it's good to know that the shittier you are to trans children and to migrant children, the more those good folks will, will love you. I love uh, Florida, but wow, the, the numbers are just shocking for how much more popular DeSantis is in this crucial swing state than former President right. Trump. Right. This is from Ragnar Research Partners. It's a, it's a Texas-based Republican polling firm, 500 Republicans surveyed in Florida. Now, this is just opinions of survey. Uh, this is just the the opinion of Republicans who were surveyed. But if you found that 86 percent of Republican voters had a favorable impression of DeSantis and 79 percent, a very favorable impression, like that's a real mm-hmm. sign of intensity. Mm-hmm. And in contrast, Trump's very favorable rating was 48 percent. Right. Like I wouldn't say a little more than half. Uh, so Trump 
is just not as well liked as DeSantis, whether it's in the top line of just overall fave, unfave, as we call it in the business, or when it comes to that really intense, very favorable impression. Now, mm-hmm. there's other s- surveys out there in other states that are showing that DeSantis is theoretically gaining on him in a Republican primary. I am not yeah. sold on Ron DeSantis running definitely against Donald Trump. I think there's a lot of time. Uh, but yeah. unlike these other possible candidates who might run against Trump in the Republican primary, Ron DeSantis does have right now the luxury of time and money. He's got about $63, 64000000 million left mm-hmm. over from his campaign. You know, mm-hmm. money like that talks. And he's got a Republican establishment that really, really wants him to be the guy and not Trump. As a resident of the beautiful state of Florida, I want to get your take on on Governor DeSantis. I know a lot of Democrats who are way too terrified of this guy. And I know a lot of Republicans who are way too confident in this guy. He, he does seem very formidable. I pay a lot of attention to him. I don't quite think he has the charisma that his backers think he has. And I think that being the smart Trump is not really the compliment some people think it is. But what is your take on the, the, the presidential fitness and electability of Ron DeSantis? I'm going to defer to the famed political scientist, Mike Tyson, who said that everyone's got a plan and then they get punched in the mouth. Right. Or Klauswitz Klaus, or had said it on war, you know, no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. So we'll see how that plays out. What I can tell you about this, about DeSantis is this. DeSantis is smart. He's calculating. He's disciplined. And he doesn't take a lot of risks. He's got an instinctive feel for his base and what plays well. And he knows that his biggest Mm. opponent that his base loves to see him beat up on is the media. And that's a huge reason for why he is where he is. How long that can last, you know, the last thing I want to do is make predictions. Hell, look at look at what happened to people predicting what 2022 is going to look like. Well, so, uh, yeah, you know, I agree. laying money well, on on the 2024 race of the Republican primary, that might be a fool's bet. Or unless you got a lot of money, you can just waste it. Mark Caputo, it's such a pleasure. I love your reporting. Uh, it's really great to have you on the show for the first time. I know I got to let you go and have your night back. But before I do, let me ask you one more prediction. Do you Do you think that we will see... Um, President Joe Biden honor the commitment he made last year and release the final trove of JFK assassination records next week. I don't like to do predictions, but my guess is no. There's 16,000 remaining top secret documents relating to the nearly 60-year-old assassination of President Kennedy. They haven't been released yet, despite the 1992 JFK Records Act. That's right. That demanded the records be released in 2017. Every president says they'll do it. Yeah. President Trump delayed it twice, left it in Biden's hands. Biden last October is like, oh, we'll release it maybe on December 15th unless someone objects. The question is, is have those other agencies objected, namely the CIA, FBI? They won't comment to me. A poll from Ben Dixon and Amandi shows that 70 percent of voters in the United States think that President Biden should release these records, regardless of what those agencies say, whether Biden wants to do that or not, well, that's going to be up to him. Fascinating. But I, d- I, I mean, doubt he's going to do it just because past is probably prologue. But I got to say, what? of all things to make me a conspiracy theorist, it's the JFK uh, assassination. I mean, listen, I, I read Jim Garrison's book when I was a kid. I, I find it fascinating. I could talk about the different theories all night. But what could be there? Everyone's still dead. What could be there that makes 
heads of state, two in a row now, say, I'm going to release this, and then they see what it is and say, uh, no, I'm the not going to release it. Has, the CIA has objected, and there's pretty good evidence that out of those 16,000 records, there's 44 records that detail an operation from the CIA based in my hometown here in Miami, a guy named mm-hmm. George Joe, he's with the CIA, who came into contact four months before the assassination with Lee Harvey Oswald, and there was well, all this it. anti-Castro skullduggery it. that happened, right? Yeah, CIA protected itself. And the CIA itself. lied about it. Well, the CIA yeah. lied about it for years. It only really became clear, like irrefutable, irrefutable in you know the late 90s, thanks to the JFK <laughs> Records Act. Wow. I mean, why? Uh, Oswald Oswald defected to Russia, and he's still allowed back in the country. Why? Okay, this is going to be a whole other conversation. Uh, Mark Caputo, it's it. such a... We should do it's it. A, should oh, do I, it. listen, I have this conversation all the time. I love it. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Please come back anytime. Thank you for taking us inside your great reporting on both the Walker campaign and the very Nazi Thanksgiving dinner at Mar-a-Lago. What's the best <laughs> way for our listeners to follow you, sir, and keep up with your reporting? Well, uh, Mark with a C, so it's at Mark A. Caputo. And uh, you can follow me there, and I, I, I have a tendency to respond to people, so uh, brilliant. looking forward to talking to you there. Thank you, sir. Have a great weekend. We appreciate your time. Quick break. We'll be right back with your calls on SiriusXM. You guys, thank you for being so patient on hold. Paul in Delaware, welcome. Hi, John. How are you, man? Very good. How you doing? I'm good. I'm driving. I just uh, had a gig, so um, I listen to you every night. I don't. Thank you. you probably. I'm not sure. No, you're you're awesome. I've always thought you were awesome. Uh, I've actually been on your show before. Okay. Many years ago, with uh, Mark Riccadonna. No, oh, right on. Okay, cool. <laughs> what's your la- What's your What's your last name, Paul? Lewis L E W I S. Yeah. Right on. Well, welcome back. It's nice to have you back. Yeah, man. It's. I always wanted to call in, but like you opened up. A, well, that guy. Woo, that was a lot. But um, you opened up a <laughs> can. <laughs> you I remember you were on. You were on with uh, with Rick Adon and Reverend Barry Lynn a couple of years back. Yes, Barry was awesome. I had a great conversation with Barry, and then I went to your Christmas party. Oh, okay, right on. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, <laughs> and your Christmas party was awesome. And thanks for inviting me. By the way, that was really sure, cool. sure. So you had a gig tonight. Where were you playing? Uh, I was playing in Centerville, Maryland. Okay. Uh, it's a it's a like a, a local hang that I frequent, where they just kind of let me do whatever I want to do, and that's nice. why I like playing there so much. Um, I was just playing I in recently, Silver. Sp- I was playing in Silver Spring, uh, Maryland, last Sunday. Oh, I love Silver Spring. That's a great area. I like that area yeah. a lot. Um, but I was so I, I've been actually on a little mini tour, but then I'm going to be in LA soon. For the Grammys uh, in February, but but I, you brought up the mask thing. So I've been wearing my mask. I have never stopped wearing my mask. Okay. I I just I I, I, I don't I just am not going to do that. I'm not going to yeah. stop wearing it. I, Good for you. Thank you. I, Thank you for uh, for well, for caring. Well, yeah. I mean, I and I, I don't want to get sick, and I don't yeah. want to get other people sick, and I don't trust people out there. So that's the other right thing on. when it comes to this. I've been boosted and shot up, and I haven't gotten my new one yet, but I'm going to. So I'm doing all of that. But, you know, I, I, I constantly get the looks that I get the, the, you know, the like, why is he wearing a mask? You know, that kind of crap. Yep. And obviously, when you go into a restaurant, it's hard to, you know, going into a restaurant is just a fucked up thing in general. But 
because you can't eat with a mask on. It's just not you, obviously. No, but I mean, you so, take, but you take, but you take it off. I mean, look, I, I, I wear a mask in in the airplane. I mean, in the airport. I'm, I wear a mask right. when I board the airplane. I wear a mask after I've seated and people are still walking through the aisle. And then once everyone's seated and they close the door, then I take my mask off. But it's like, you know, knowing the right time for it. And I'm someone who's had COVID and I've had long COVID and I am oh, not going to be shy about wearing a mask because A, no, um, anybody who puts down mask wearing doesn't know anything about long COVID and hasn't read about it. And B, you know, I care about other people enough that I don't want to be right. the guy who That's gives it to them. Yeah, yes. so don't listen. That fuck these clowns. Point. And if they ever give you shit, just say, "I just say, just say, I have an immune disorder, you asshole," and make them feel bad in front of their families. <laughs> You're allowed so, to do that. Yes, I, I I agree with that. And I'm getting ready to fly for the first time since COVID in oh, February wow. to go to LA um, nice. for the Grammy week, and I'm playing at the Hotel Cafe uh, in Hollywood uh, the night before. And, and then we're heading to the Grammys. But I just, I'm a little paranoid about flying. I have to say, I really no, am. No, don't. I'm don't. Little, when, when, are you do, little, when are you doing, when are you flying? When are you flying? I will be on the plane on the 31st of January. Okay, so you're, you're doing it after the big holiday time, so it's going to be a lot less yeah. scary. No one's going to be traveling then. You're going to do all the same usual things. You're going to wash your hands, right? You know, yep, here, yep, listen, yep, if, yep. You feel, if you feel weird about it, double mask it. Get an N95. Don't wear a cloth mask. Get an N95. And, and honestly, I'm more scared of airports than airplanes. So, like, uh, look, okay. I've flown. Right. I've went to L- this year. I went to L.A. four times. I was in D.C. a bunch of times. I've been to I, I, I was in Hawaii last year. I was in Costa Rica last year. I've been on my share of flights. Oh, Jesus. OK. All right. Yeah. 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 So it's not that scary. But like, here's what I advise what I do. And this is just me. You know, wear your damn mask in the airport at all times and then don't take it off yeah. until I, until I, the seatbelt sign is on. And the, and the when you when the plane pulls away from the jet bridge then you can take the mask off <laughs> okay all right that's what um, i do it's what i have my son do and uh you know and then you know because don't wear the mask the whole flight no one's in your face you know come on so, i well uh, hang on chris has his thoughts i uh, have i i follow a slightly altered edict chris um, is wearing a mask right now and two condoms. No, well, okay. I, I, you know, I, I wear it in the terminal. <laughs> I, I wear it where there's a lot of people. But when I'm on the plane, uh, I'll definitely wear it um, while everyone's boarding. And I won't take my mask off for sure until we hit up to cruising, and they and basically the air gets circulated a lot when when they, when it, when the airplane goes above ten thousand feet is when the air right. circulation becomes constant and right. that's when the CO2 levels in the plane really bottom it out and so okay. that's when I'll take my mask off. I see. Up okay. until then when, when you're All on the tarmac right. the, the plane's just recycling its own air so that's like you're just breathing and you know. Yeah. Everyone else is there. So, yeah. so, so be even more paranoid than me and, and be, be like Chris. He's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean look I'll be honest with you the last two times that I flew I took left my mask on the entire flight uh, yeah. well i mean and i've seen people do no that problem too, with that but, i mean i i mean i again this is the first time i'm i'm getting on a plane since covid so and i okay. used to fly to la like three four five times a year like yeah we do a lot of business out there but 
yeah. Uh, I'm just, it's just, I don't know. I'm just, I feel weird. Take back the skies. Take back the skies. Listen, if you really feel weird, go ahead and wear two masks. No one's going to know. And, and, you know, bring, bring, no, I'm not kidding. Bring some hand sanitizer. Wash your damn hands a bunch of times. Do all the same usual things, you know, and, and just try to avoid, I mean, talking too close to anybody who's not wearing a mask. I mean, just, just be safe. You know what to do. Walking on with a suit of armor, but I don't think I could get in. Uh, get through the uh, TSA with that. So probably. I mean, I, listen. I went through, all, through this all last year, and I was terrified to get on a plane. And now I've done it a few times. And you know, just 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 play safe. But I'm someone who's had okay. COVID, and I all had right. COVID that lasted for six months, and it ruined most Jesus. of my year this year. I yeah. remember and, you talked about that. Yeah. yeah, and it's no kind of fun. So just you know, don't ever, ever, ever feel bad if some red hat wants to call you names. <laughs> Because you care about your own long-term health and the long-term health of others. You know, it's just, you're paying the price for not being a dick. So enjoy it and be right. proud. Right. No, I, don't be a dick. Wear a mask. That's it. Yes, it's I, very I, simple. Yes. It's very simple. It's pretty much and, the entire message of the New Testament. Don't be a dick. I, I, <laughs> I translate from the Hebrew, but that's that was the Nazarene's main thing. Hey, Paul, it's so, good to hear from you. Come back and okay, see us sometime. All right. So I feel a little better now about that. Thank you. But Hey, we're, we're um, here to help. <laughs> and you do, man. You're you're awesome. Your show's fantastic. I I you're very kind. literally listen to it uh, after every gig. You know, I literally put you on always. But um, thank you so much. So this Chris, Chris Kirsten Cinema thing. Yes. God, she's such a dick. I mean, what the fuck? I mean, seriously, like I, she's just saving her own ass with this independent thing. That's all it is. That's, yes. It's all about her. She's stealing. She wants to steal the spotlight for five seconds. Yes. Uh, she's the most annoying fuck. Oh, my God. She's so annoying. Well, yeah. Yeah. And it's painful for me because I've, I've met her. I've interviewed her. And I, I, I love how she dresses. I love her whole style. It's painful for me that someone that fabulous can be this. I mean, but again, you know, someday they'll be. They'll I be liked writing. her in the beginning. This is the thing that sucks. I thought she was cool. And I was I like, have a thing for, I got a big thing for narcissistic women with great style. That's, that's my type. So yeah, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking, but you know, it's not going to change that much. It will not change that much. Uh, she's she voted with Biden 90% of the time. That was my, that was my concern. Is it going to, is this going to fuck with the Senate? Or is it, it is could. It really this could really. I mean, look, it. Democrats have their work cut out for them to keep the Senate in 2024. They have a lot of right. incumbents that are up. The Republicans aren't defending as many seats. So, uh, you know, this would be a very good time for a Republican to come in there. But I'll tell you, I have a lot of faith in the young voters in, in Arizona. This is not the kind of Arizona that we grew up with that was just so automatically right wing. So, that's true. I, you know, that's true. yeah. So, yeah, so let's not story. worry about it just yet. She's going like to keep on doing what she the does. The governor is a. The governor's a positive thing. Hobbs, yeah, I think so too. Positive. Yeah, I think very, so too. Look, I think I think Joe Biden should just offer Kirsten Cinema a cabinet position, and and just go ahead and just mm-hmm. offer a cabinet. Give well, her, give her some, fire somebody. Her from, he's not removing her because of this. No, no, no. no, no I'm saying he should offer her a cabinet position so she leaves the Senate and then he can hire a Democrat to take her seat. Uh, that's, that, you know, that's just my thinking. Gee, that's a smart man. Well, yeah, I have a lot of free time. Paul, I got to run. We got to hit a break or they're going to beat me up. It's a pleasure to hear from you. you guys. Drive safe, so man. Much. Call us anytime. Call us more often, for God's sakes. Thank you. This is Progress. Progress.